This morning, in your Bibles, the book of Matthew. In your Bibles, the book of Matthew, in chapter number 6, we are continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, originally, it was my plans to just push through this in a big hurry, but I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I've enjoyed this too much, and um it has been a, a just an incredible challenge to me, and I hope that God would challenge all of us as we study through this wonderful sermon. Matthew 6, verse 25, Jesus says to those folks that are on the hillside there along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, He says to them, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought, or don't be anxious, very simply. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat or food, and the body more than raiment or clothing? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought? For raiment or clothing, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Today I speak to you on the subject of you've got the right to worry when. You've got the right to worry when. Can you see them? As you think back to the biblical account, through the eyes of imagination, can you see the fear on their faces? Look at those Israelites, recently liberated from Egyptian servitude. Now, knees knocking, scared to death before the armies of Pharaoh who they are certain is going to slaughter them. With the massive Red Sea before them, and the bloodthirsty armies of Egypt bearing down on them, God's chosen people were seemingly doomed. Hear their cries, listen to their moaning. Terrified, the Jewish, pe the Jewish people 
groan and say, wasn't there enough grave sites back in Egypt, Moses? Did you really have to bring us all the way out here in the wilderness just to die and be buried? So quickly had God's people forgotten the ten miraculous plagues that they had witnessed in Egypt. Too readily had they forgotten the blood of the Passover lamb that was sprinkled in order to keep them safe as the angel of death passed through the camp. Instead, in a moment of fear, anxiety and dread overcame them and their faith became small. Worry robbed God's people of the knowledge of God's power and His promises. Overwhelmed, thinking death was imminent, they allowed any number of frightening scenarios to run through their terrified minds. They were scared over what might happen. But those of us who have been to Sunday school or sat under any Old Testament preaching for any length of time, we know what happened. As the people of Israel were pressed up against the Red Sea, the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on them, God made a way. He split the water, dried up the muddy ground, and God's children passed safely over. And then God in righteous, holy fury destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Do we still affirm this biblical narrative is true? Do we still say this happened, it really happened? Yes, we do. But none of the things that the frightened people of God thought might happen actually happened. Every word of complaint was a wasted word. Every moment spent in fear and worry was time wasted. Every grievance against God was an exhibition of little faith. Their anxiety brought them nothing but restlessness and robbed them of peace. Yet, lest we think ourselves smug and superior, how many of us, on any number of occasions, have acted just like the children of Israel did at that very moment? At the moment when all seemed hopeless, cornered, caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place, How many of us, even over less frightening circumstances, have not behaved in a way consistent with Christian conduct or character? How many of us, when faced with some trial or tribulation, have allowed anxiety and dread to overcome us and rob us of faith? How many times has worry Stolen away our knowledge of God's power and God's promises. Too often, dear friends, frightened and overwhelmed, 
We are no different. In fact, if I've learned anything through our Old Testament Sunday afternoon series is that God's children just haven't changed a whole lot over the centuries. Frightened and overwhelmed, we allow any number of scenarios to run through our anxious minds. We too quickly become filled with fear and we are impotent and frozen of scared to death of what might happen. Yet every hour spent worrying hasn't changed a single thing. Every sleepless night has brought us nothing but dark circles under our eyes. Every worry has only brought about wrinkles and gray hair. And all too soon do we, like our brothers and sisters of old, do we forget the command of our King to put our confidence in our God and to trust in His loving power. My friends, Jesus says again and again and again on that hillside, speaking to His hearers and speaking to us as well, take no thought for tomorrow. Don't be anxious, Christian. Stop worrying yourself to death about the things of this life. God loves His people. And He knows what we need even before we ask. Because of this, the Christian should focus first and foremost on spiritual and eternal matters while trusting God's provision and providence to meet our temporal needs. We should trust God's provision and providence to meet our needs while we focus on that which is of most importance. Now last Sunday I sought to clarify that there is a significant difference between godly concern and unwarranted worry and unbridled anxiety. Or simply stated, it's one thing to be alarmed by the heartache and the trials that life on a fallen planet can often bring. But it's something else when we allow a situation or a circumstance to rob us of all peace. It is something else when we allow the situation or at least a potential situation to cripple us, to paralyze us. We should not worry. And I should, we can put a period right there. We should not worry. Don't be anxious. Five times Jesus makes reference to this in this short little section. Certainly we don't need to worry about the necessities of life. Hear these words. God is our heavenly Father. Our heavenly Father. Now, as we continue to make our way through this section of the Jesus Sermon, we're going to be reminded over and over again that life is transient, life is short, and we need to focus on the eternal, trusting God to meet our needs. Last week, I gave you four truths, what I called four truths about worry. First, that worry is unhealthy. 
It is unprofitable, it is unbiblical, and it is unnecessary. Now these points are actually interwoven within our text, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But after looking further this week, I think it would serve us well to actually add a fifth point, actually where we're going to pick up where we left off, and that is to say also that worry is just unreasonable. Worry is unreasonable. Notice with me, not only, as I mentioned last week, that worry is unhealthy. Let me just remind you, there are any number of documented side effects to worry. How anxiety can affect you emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. We know that there is, as Jesus says in verse 25, we know that there is more to this life than food and clothing, yet we often worry, worry, worry. We know what we should do and what we should not do, yet it is a real struggle to do what we're supposed to or not to worry. Even though we, any, anyone of any maturity will say we know that Worrying is unhealthy, still we struggle not to worry. Maybe in our time, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, maybe in our time, our culture, our first concern is not food and clothing, but something or someone else can easily rob us of our peace that we should enjoy with God, confidence in what He can and will do, and how how clear we must, we must admit that anxiety can be so detrimental to our hearts, our lives, our homes, our Christian walk. So it's unhealthy. Truth number one, worry is unhealthy. And I think Jesus makes that clear from this passage. Christian, we should seek to avoid dwelling on what we cannot control. Secondly, and now we're going to get into the text. Not only is worry unhealthy, worry is unreasonable. It's just unreasonable. And to illustrate this, I want you to take from the text, look at verse 26, where Jesus says, Behold the fowls of the air. They do not sow. That is, they don't sow seed. They don't reap. That is, they're not out. The birds are not out harvesting fields, uh, gathering in hay and barley, yet... Uh, they don't, or they don't gather into barns, yet God feeds them. So to illustrate how unreasonable worry is, Jesus says, behold the fowls of the air, or consider the birds. Now obviously I can't prove this. But in my mind, I will imagine that as Jesus sat there on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee, preaching this marvelous message, at the point in which he reaches where we are, there were some birds nearby. I, I've had the great privilege to travel to Jerusalem, to stand on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, even near on the, on the northern shore where they believe that this was taught, near that area. And I can just imagine as Jesus is sitting there with this multitude of people around him, and he is telling them, don't worry, don't be anxious, take no thought. That just about that time there were some birds that fly overhead. Or maybe just nearby there are a few birds darting down to the ground 
picking up a little morsel of food to take back to their nest. And Jesus, being the master teacher, just says, Hey, listen, you want to learn a lesson? Consider the fowls of the air. Think about birds. You don't see them planting seed. You don't see birds tilling a garden. You don't see birds reaping a harvest. Yet your Father feeds them. Behold, that word means to stop and seriously consider. Think about this. God feeds the birds of the air, these tiny little creatures. Christian, what are you so worried about? I am told that at any given time there are somewhere between 300 and 400 billion birds on this planet. 300 and 400 billion birds. Now that compares to 7.5 billion people. That's a lot of birds to feed. And yet day after day, season after season, year after year, generation after generation, God feeds the birds of the air. He feeds them and has since the dawn of time. Now the birds are not lazy, are they? Birds get up in the morning, sing their carols, go about their busy day gathering food and instruments to build their nest. You don't see birds just sitting back doing nothing. No, they prepare. And so Jesus again is not saying take no thought or don't prepare. That's not, that's not at all what He's saying. He's saying consider the birds. They get out and do what they can. But on the other hand, answer me this. Do you ever see birds overcome with anxiety? Do eagles and owls get stomach ulcers from worrying about where their next meal is going to come from? Then why are you so worried, Christian? Now there will always be some God-denying Bible critic who would come along and say, well, the words of Jesus aren't true because... Every year, any number of birds can die from starvation, in particular during the long, cold winter months. And to that, I must reply, Jesus is not giving a lesson here on ornithology or on the environment. He is stating a general principle. And that is, by and large and overwhelmingly, Every single day, God Almighty feeds billions and billions of birds on this planet. And in the same vein, we could say, you know, down through the centuries, there have been God's people, Christians, who have died of starvation for varying reasons. Some because of persecution. Some, as Gerald's father was a POW for many, many years. But this is not... The rule, that is the exception. Just because there are some birds that don't make it through the winter doesn't mean that Jesus is wrong. I might remind you the reason that the world is in the state it is in is because man sinned. Our first father Adam sinned and brought in starvation and disease and death into the world that God had created in a state of innocence. So when there is drought and famine and starvation, 
That cannot be laid at the feet of the Almighty man, mankind. We must acknowledge our responsibility for this. Even, yet even, on this sin-cursed world, there is still plenty, a bounty, for God's creation. So then Jesus asked this question. In verse 26, Are ye not much better than they? Or perhaps, better understood, aren't you worth more than the birds of the air? Now I know what I'm going to say here can really get under the skin of some people. But animals are not humans. Now I'm not looking to make anybody mad, but we need to learn that. There is a generation that is rising up that has watched too many Disney movies. in which they humanize animals. And in truth, our civilization animalizes humans. That'll preach. But do you get what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, you are of far greater value than the birds or the animals. Now, you come to my house and you mistreat my dog, we're going to have problems. I can just tell you right now, I love my puppy dog. But God created man, man, mankind in His image. We are His image bearers, not animals. God loved humanity so much that He made a plan of redemption to restore fallen men back into fellowship with Himself. There's no redemption plan for any animals or any kind of creatures. But men, Jesus Christ came to redeem men. And God loved us so much that He gave His own Son for mankind, for people. And I know it may not be incredibly popular, but human life is of far greater value than animal life. It's just true. I'm not saying mistreat your animals. But bless God... Our loving Father put cows on this earth to be eaten. Amen. All right. To be eaten or whatever. They're not to be worshipped. And Jesus says, now I want you to think about something. If God can feed billions upon billions upon billions of birds every day, are you worried about where your next meal is going to come from? You are worth so much more than they are. So much that God would give His own Son for you. Christian, why are you so worried? Yes, the point is, it is unreasonable. Jesus is really asking that, verse 26, the close of that is really a rhetorical question. The Jews would have better understood, I guess, than modern Americans, that yes, human life is a far greater than animal life or even plant life. So yes, if God can feed the birds, God can feed you. So worry is just unreasonable. The second illustration that Jesus uses in this, in this section is in verse 28 through 30. Why take thought for clothing or raiment? Why are you so worried about this? And then he points to the lilies of the field, the flowers. 
Now, the folks that Jesus was speaking to lived in a far different way than we do. We have, listen to what I'm trying to say. We have the blessing and the cursing of living in one of the most affluent countries that has ever existed on planet Earth. And it is a blessing, but it can also be a cursing. Because it becomes hard for us to really associate with this text. Because most of us don't have to worry one bit about having enough clothes to wear. Our trouble is what? Deciding what to wear. But if you go back into this first century context, to where people didn't have walk-in closets and racks of shoes, and they lived on what they could grow or what they could kill, they were fully dependent on God day by day. Give us this day our daily bread. Now most of us, now I, I can't speak for you, at our house we got a pantry full of food. We have got a freezer full of food. We even got a little half-size standalone freezer full of food. That is a blessing, but it can also be a cursing because, you know, we get to the point where I don't, I don't really need God. I've got these basic necessities of life already met, and that is an issue. When, friends, we need to realize how much we need God. Jesus, I think, gives a wonderful example, and I know I'm cheesy, and this is going to be somewhat of a cheesy message, but listen to this. Jesus is saying to his hearers, look over those flowers. Again, I, I think as he's on that hillside, he saw some birds, and he said, that makes for a good illustration. Then he said, how about these flowers over here, the lilies of the field? Think about them. Think about their beauty. How God clothes them. Jesus would say those Flowers over there aren't holding any tiny needles with their petals and sewing clothes to wear. Those lilies aren't spinning wool for winter clothing. Those flowers aren't anxious about what they're going to wear. God has already clothed them. In fact, Jesus says, God has already clothed them. And He's clothed them in such a way they are more beautiful than even King Solomon was in all his royal apparel. I said this, and I think sometimes maybe people think it's silly, but if you'll ever slow down and really look at some flowers, it is marvelously intricate, God's glorious detail in what He has created. And Jesus says, naturally we would look at King Solomon and his vast wealth and in his royal robes, and think how beautiful it was. And the Lord says, you just go look at the lilies of the field. They are arrayed in far greater splendor than Solomon ever was. And yet, today they'll be here and tomorrow they'll be dried and cast into the fire and used to warm the home or to cook on. And if God's going to clothe the grass of the field, don't you think God is going to clothe you? So what are you worried about, Christian? Now, I realize that even in America, and I will say this, that even in America, 
Right now, there are some people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. In fact, probably some of you here are old enough that if you go back far enough, you're going to realize we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. Some of you are going to be old enough that you'll remember that, but you didn't have to worry about it because you knew mom and daddy was going to take care of it. Well, if we can trust an earthly parent to feed us and clothe us, how much more a heavenly father? I don't think in our culture and in our society we are so worried about having food to eat or clothes to wear, but I, I think we doubtless though still have many things that plague our minds that worry us. It may not be the basic necessities of life that are keeping you up at night. Maybe you're not worried about having clothes. Maybe you're not worried about having food to eat. Maybe you feel like, well, that's well taken care of. But if you'll live on this earth, that may not get you, but something will plague your mind. Christian, do we not worry about our careers? Many people, some that I know dearly, and some friends, during the recent epidemic have lost their jobs. And they're worried. They're worried about how they're going to pay their bills, how they're going to pay their mortgage, how are we going to make our car payment. What about my retirement? But we also worry, do we not, about children? I don't know if there's anything that weighs so heavily on the heart of any Christian parent is their children, grandchildren, wayward, indifferent to spiritual things. We worry about these things. We worry about our nation. We worry about our culture. We worry about our church. We worry about our families. It may not be food and clothing, but Christian, there's going to be something that will rob you of all your peace and joy if you let it. There will be something that will keep you up at night if you focus on that rather than trusting in God. I would implore you to take a look at what you find in your bulletin. There's some pretty sound counsel there from Ray Pritchard on three ways to know whether or not you have a godly concerned or unbridled anxiety. Take a look at that. Take it home and consider it. But to worry, and I've got to hurry... But to worry about what we cannot control is simply unreasonable. Faith compels us to trust God, whether it is a wayward child, or whether it is a job, or food, or clothing, or a career, whatever that it is. Jesus is saying, as we just sang, God will take care of you. Through every day and all the way. He will take care of you. No, life will not be painless. And certainly Jesus isn't saying you should run through life carefree. That's not it at all. Consider the birds of the air. They get out, they go, they work. Do what you can, but ultimately you need to turn some stuff over to God. If you are covered with anxiety and worry, you need to li- just to give it over to God. 
to let it go. Quit trying to control the uncontrollable. Elizabeth Cheney wrote these words. Listen to this. Said the, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly Father such as cares for you and me. Consider the birds of the air. If God feeds the birds, if God dresses the flowers, why should we worry about God meeting our needs? So the, for the Christian, worry is not only unhealthy, but it's unreasonable. But then thirdly, worry is unprofitable. And I would point your attention to verse 27. Which of you, by taking thought or by being anxious, can add one cubit unto his stature? Again, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question here. Which of you? Now, this is, it almost sounds silly, but it is worth considering Jesus saying this is how not only unreasonable, but how unprofitable worry and anxiety it is is what good does it actually do? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Now, I want to teach you something, and you can receive it or you can push back. That's up to you. But if you will study this, I think that you will agree with me. I think you'll learn, if you really study this, that the word stature, as found in verse 27, has to do with length. Length either in inches or in years. It has a word that ha- carries the idea of the having to do with the extent of something, really span, stature or span. For example, how tall someone is, or this same word is used in John 9 to talk about how old someone is in stature. That word has to do with how old someone is. And if you've been around church a whole lot, you've probably been told a cubit is the length from the tip of the finger to the elbow, roughly somewhere around 18 inches. But it can also make reference to a measurement or the extent of something. So here's the point I'm trying to make. I have, as I have read this over the years and have studied it, I always thought it was curious that Jesus would say, which of you by worrying can make yourself taller? Or which of you by being anxious can grow a foot and a half? I've always thought that was a little bit curious. Now obviously that's true, right? By worrying, you're not going to grow any taller. You're not going to get a foot and a half taller if you stay up all night fretting over it. But I don't really think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think a better understanding of what Jesus is asking is this. Is which of you by worrying is going to live one minute longer? I don't think he's talking about the height of someone, their physical growing 18 inches. I think Jesus is talking about the length of life. Think on that. Think on this. Listen. Which of you 
by staying up all night staring at the ceiling. Which of you are going to live one hour longer? Are you going to live any longer because you're worried every minute? No, you're not. If anything, you're going to live shorter. And I think that's the point that Jesus is trying to give at is all this anxiety and worry and concern that so often grips our heart. All it is doing is robbing us of life when we should be trusting Him and serving Him and putting Him first in all that we do. Which of you, by being anxious and restless, is going to live one hour longer? And the answer is, you're not. So then why? Jesus is asking His hillside hearers, and then He's asking us to, to think about this. What good does it actually do, child of God, to worry? What good does it do? The answer is, it is absolutely unprofitable. It doesn't do any. Worry doesn't accomplish a thing. It might keep you occupied, but like we put in the bulletin there last week, it's like a rocking chair. It may give you somewhere to do, but it's not going to get you anywhere. Nail-biting anxiety achieves absolutely nothing. Worry doesn't change a thing. So Jesus is saying, why do it? Why are you so overwhelmed and anxious? It is totally unprofitable. It is useless. It is pointless. It is fruitless. It is senseless. It is absurd. It is ineffectual. And yet we all still struggle not to worry. We know it's doing no good, but we still struggle not to. Worry is unhealthy. It is unreasonable. It is unprofitable. But then fourthly, worry is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. At verse 30, at the close of verse 30, where Jesus asked, if God closed the grass of the field, today it's going to be here, tomorrow it's going to be cast in the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you? Aren't you worth more than that? And if he's going to look after the, the flowers, if he's going to provide for the birds, notice this little phrase, O ye of little faith. So worry is not just unhealthy and unreasonable and unprofitable. It's also unbiblical. It is an exercise of little faith. Now, I'm not saying or suggesting that there aren't times and seasons in which things happen that knock you down, but that's where faith compels us to hang on to God. Notice what Jesus says in verse 32. This is not high praise. Well, verse 31, take no thought what we're going to eat or drink. But verse 32, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That is a cleaned up word. It means heathens. It's talking about unbelievers. Can I say it like this? If you are overcome, unsettled, restless, of little faith, worried to death, you are acting just like an unbeliever. You're acting like an unbeliever. Where is your faith in God? I, no, I promise you, if this is hitting you at all between the eyes, it's already beat me up for three or four weeks. 
I have spent too many nights upset and anxious over about what might happen, knowing it was a waste of time, but still seemingly unable to get my mind out of it. Yet Jesus is saying here, it's unbiblical. It's unhealthy. It's it's unreasonable. It's unprofitable, but it's just unbiblical. I said this last week. I'm going to repeat it. You cannot effectively live for eternity if you are worried to death about the present. You cannot be salt and light in a worry wart at the same time. Kingdom citizens should trust their king. There should be something notably different about how Christians face the unknown as opposed to an unbelieving world. If we really mean it is well with my soul, then why are we so anxious? If we really sing in our hearts, God will take care of you, why are we up all night so worried and fretting? Oh ye, isn't that what you, oh ye of little faith? God help us to trust in Him. Here, do this. You search the Scriptures and you find one example where God told His people, it's okay for you to worry. You're not going to find it. It's not there. What you will find is God over and over again. How many times did he tell Joshua, take heart or have courage? Be strong and of a good countenance. How many times did God warn his people, have faith in God? Trust me. I love you. You're my child. I love you. There should be something different about how we face the unknown as opposed to an unbelieving world. There's an old song that says, Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. You ought to know that, Christian. Worry is unhealthy, worry is unreasonable, worry is unprofitable, worry is unbiblical, but finally worry is unnecessary. Verse 32, the second half says, For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. The Father knows, as our brother said, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Will God forget to feed and clothe His own children? Isaiah 49, 15 says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Listen to this. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Worry is unnecessary Christian, because of who your father is. Because of who your father is. I took a video a few weeks ago. 
I wanted to show it, but it would probably embarrass them too much and I have to live with these women. So I didn't want to show the video. But when I was coming, when we were coming back from vacation in June, I'm driving. I look to my right, Pat is dead asleep. Look over my right shoulder, Grace is out. Look over my uh, best I can behind me, Hope is out. And I grab my phone and I just take a quick video scanning through the car. And there's a certain amount of me that says, these people must be crazy. I'm serious. They're going to go to sleep while I'm driving? But you know, they trust that I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they're safe. So much so that they can lay down and sleep while we're going 70 miles an hour down the road in a car that's 13 years old. What are you worried about, Christian? Do you know who your father is? You can lay down and sleep knowing who he is. Why are you up? Why are you frantic? Why are you sweating? Why are you worried? Do you know who your father is? Jesus says your heavenly father knows what you need. Worry is unnecessary because of who your father is. Rest in him. It's worthless. Worry is absolutely worthless. And so here is the point that I have been building to. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I still worry. And I'm going to say, yeah, you've got the right to worry when. And listen to me. When you see pigeons and parakeets pushing a plow, you've got a right to worry. When you see sparrows and swallows sowing seed rather than stealing seed, then you've got a right to worry. When you see blue jays and blackbirds belling hay, then you've got a right to worry. When you see birds building barns, then you've got a right to worry, Christian. But as long as God continues to feed the fowls of the air, you have no right to be overcome with anxiety. Are you worried about having clothes to wear? Well, here's this. When you see tulips toiling, or when you see sunflowers sewing shirts, then you've got the right to worry. Until then, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You've got the right to worry when. When worry can cause you to grow one inch taller. When worry can cause you to live one minute longer. You got a right to worry when God forgets to feed his children. You got a right to worry when God neglects his own. You got a right to worry when he that is against us is greater than he that is in us. When Romans 8.28 is scratched out of the book, you've got a right to worry, but until then you have no right, Christian.